Hello, and welcome to another podcast brought to you by Airs LA. My name is Nancy Porter, and it's my pleasure to bring you selections from Time Magazine. I need to remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. I'm going to be sharing articles with you from the November 6th issue of Time Magazine. This is from the brief section, which begins on page 10. Headline, A Newer World Order by Will Henshaw. Tighter export controls on computer chips escalate the U.S. rivalry with China. Not by chance did the era of worldwide free trade, globalization, coincide with the hope of successive U.S. governments that the capitalism that was lifting billions of people out of poverty would also show China the merits of democracy. The two were invariably linked, after all, in the Cold War that the West had won. But China preferred to launch a new rivalry promoting a new authoritarian system that offers the wealth of capitalism while exploiting elements, surveillance, centralization, of what generates so much of that wealth, digital tech. That's why the Biden administration announced on October 17th that it is tightening export controls on semiconductor chips used for artificial intelligence and the equipment used to manufacture them. AI is considered key to efficiencies that could provide not only huge advantages in business and commerce, but also even more critical advantages in a country's military and defense. To ensure that more semiconductors are made in America, the administration last year hailed passage of the CHIPS and Science Act. And to prevent China from acquiring or producing advanced chips, the new Commerce Department rules aim both to close loopholes in controls and to account for technological developments since. But the controls are also a sharp escalation in the contest for technological superiority between the U.S. and China, even as the Biden administration tries to cool tensions between the countries in other domains. The chips themselves are increasingly crucial for the development of state-of-the-art AI systems. And though some analysts question the control's efficacy, if they succeed, China could be left behind. Protecting our foundational technologies with a small yard and high fence is how White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has previously described the restrictions implying that the rules are tailored to affect only advanced technology with relevance to national security. But others say the restrictions go further, edging into the realms of business and trade. A report by Gregory Allen, director of the Wadwani Center of AI and Advanced Technologies at the Center for Strategic and International Studies think tank, argued that because the restrictions are industry agnostic, and aim to prevent China from ever matching U.S. capabilities, they marked the beginning of a new era in U.S.-China relations. 
That unsettles some U.S. tech companies. China is a huge market for chip manufacturers, accounting for 20 to 25 percent of American company NVIDIA's data center revenue. The stocks of chip makers, including NVIDIA, plummeted after the announcement, and the Semiconductor Industry Association warned that overly broad unilateral controls risk harming the U.S. semiconductor ecosystem without advancing national security as they encourage overseas customers to look elsewhere. The industry's apprehension is one measure of the administration's seriousness. Analysts and policymakers have argued that the 2022 restrictions allowed the sale of chip manufacturing equipment to companies like Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, a Chinese state-owned chip manufacturer, and were not properly enforced. There have also been accusations of Chinese AI developers smuggling chips into the country. Chinese chip developers, experts argue, have been able to continue catching up with the technological frontier, and Chinese AI developers have been continuing their work apace. Last year's restriction contained major loopholes, says Dylan Patel, chief analyst at Semi-Analysis, a semiconductor industry analysis firm. Semiconductor manufacturers' business was not really impacted at all. The updates have tightened restrictions on the sales of chips, but Patel says they still have left possible openings for the sale of chip manufacturing equipment. With further restrictions on the types of chips it can import, but lenience around chip manufacturing equipment, Patel predicts that the latest rules will encourage development of China's domestic chip industry. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said export controls were likely to be updated at least annually, as the technology continues to advance. On one level, this can seem really technocratic and boring, the chip performance thresholds and intercontent bandwidth, but at the end of the day, these most advanced chips are a huge area of geopolitical competition, says Paul Shari. Executive Vice President and Director of Studies at the Center for a New American Security, a military affairs think tank. I think we're going to continue to see Chinese actors and other global companies, including U.S. companies, be responsive and change their behavior, but also find ways to continue to make money and advance their own interests despite this. The next article is from the Bulletin, page 13, headline, Bedbugs Aren't Just a Problem for Paris. The news reports are alarming, to say the least. Paris, the city known for its style, cuisine, and romance, has a bedbug problem. But what's behind the invasion? How did the insects manage to infiltrate so much of the city? With Paris hosting the first Olympics in the post-COVID-19 era next summer, those questions are not just matters for idle conversation. Bedbug Basics Bedbugs feed almost exclusively on human blood and find their meals by homing in on the carbon dioxide we exhale. 
Because they are cautious creatures, they feed when we're asleep or relatively immobile, like sitting on a couch or a chair, before scurrying back into tiny cracks and crevices in mattresses or between walls and floors. They are remarkably hardy genetically and can inbreed with little problem for generations. Bread to be bad. Today's bedbugs are resistant to nearly every insecticide available. While DDT and organophosphates effectively controlled bedbug populations for decades, after those chemicals were banned for harming human health, the insects developed resistance to all remaining pesticides so that we now have thick-skinned, hard-drinking, mutant bedbugs says Deanie Miller, a professor of entomology at Virginia Tech. Their thicker echoskeletons keep insecticides out, and they also have enzymes that can break down chemicals even if they do end up absorbing some. Battle plan. Bedbugs persist in any city, including Paris, because getting rid of them is expensive and involved. The best method involves a multi-pronged strategy, including some combination of pesticides, a fungus-based treatment that kills infected bugs, and heating an entire dwelling to 125 degrees Fahrenheit or higher, or using silica dust to suffocate them. Vacuuming visible bugs is also an important first step. Ultimately, however, leaving it up to individuals to manage them may only keep the bug populations thriving. Unless they are dealt with on a broader society-wide scale, the problem will not go away, says Zachary DeVries, an assistant professor of entomology at the University of Kentucky. And that was written by reporter Alice Park. Moving on now to page 24. We move on to the brief section, a time with mega author John Grisham, who returns to his roots in Memphis and on the page. And this is by Molly Ball with reporting by Julia Zorthian. On a racetrack at the front of Burke's bookstore in Memphis is a postcard showing the shop in an earlier era overhung by a billboard that's no longer there. Grisham is coming, it says in big red letters, next to a photo of the youthful lawyer turned author. His brow is knitted, mouth pursed. Below, a line of people wait for the store to open. John Grisham picks up the postcard and looks at it. Oh yeah, I remember those days, he says in his honey-thick drawl. The image is from a book signing for the Chamber in 1994. It's a memento of the heady days of his early success, when he released the succession of bestsellers that became hit movies. People camped out in line for his signings, studios got in bidding wars for his film rights, and stores could barely keep his book in stock. Much has changed since. Publishing has fallen on hard times. 
while the legal arena Grisham writes about has never seemed more tormented. What hasn't changed is Grisham's steady commitment. Since breaking out with the legal thriller The Firm in 1991, he's published at least one book a year, 48 consecutive number one New York Times bestsellers, a feat that no other writer has ever matched. This October, he has gone back to the beginning. His new book, titled The Exchange, is a sequel to The Firm, the 1990 movie version of which starred Tom Cruise as lawyer Mitch McDeer. The new book was inspired in part by Cruise's reprise in Top Gun Maverick. Its release has Grisham feeling reflective. When I started writing the book, I really got nostalgic, he says. He's not the only one. Grisham Renaissance may be in the offing. Feature films of Grisham's novels, Calico Joe, The Confession, The Partner, and The Racketeer, are all in development, while several others are being turned into TV series, according to his agent, David Gernert. Grisham's books have shaped the way millions of people see the law and its discontents, tackling themes like racial violence, corporate greed, environmental destruction, and capital punishment. By his own account, he's obsessed with injustice and often takes a novel as an opportunity to explore an issue. But he never wants readers to feel that they're being lectured to, he says. I don't spend a lot of time delivering messages, he says. I want to tell a story in such a way that the reader is caught up in it and the pages turn. On this late August morning, Grisham has come to Burke's to see the owners, his friends Corey and Cheryl Messler, who, like every bookstore and Walmart in the country, are preparing for his book to drop. Mitch is back, Grisham tells Corey Messler. Grisham, now based outside Charlottesville, Virginia, grew up in small towns in Arkansas and Mississippi, the son of a sharecropper. He remembers picking cotton as a young child, fingers bleeding. He put himself through college and law school, then scraped by for a few years in private practice in Mississippi, hustling for clients while also serving as a Democrat in the Mississippi House of Representatives. Then, in his spare time, starting at 5.30 every morning, he drafted a novel in longhand, inspired by a court scene that he had witnessed. A Time to Kill about a black man who takes the law into his own hands after his daughter is raped by rednecks and the lawyer who defends him was published by an imprint of an obscure Christian press and he implored local bookstores to stock it. But Grisham was already at work on another book he hoped would be more commercial. The tale of a Harvard-educated tax lawyer from a humble background who moves to Memphis to work for a mysterious firm only to find himself caught between the Chicago mob and the FBI. I set the book in Memphis because I hadn't been anywhere else, he tells me. The firm did not have a publisher when a scout smuggled the manuscript to L.A., sparking an improbable bidding war and a $600,000 contract with Paramount Pictures. By the time it was published in 1991, 
it was hotly anticipated. The firm went on to sell more than 7 million copies. It was on the firm's publicity tour, Grisham says, that he picked up a bit of career-defining wisdom. He overheard a publishing executive mention that the biggest authors, Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, Sidney Sheldon, tended to release a book a year. It should be obvious to someone like me, who's a big reader, somebody who wants to write bestsellers, but I'd never thought about that, he says. So, I hustled back to the farm in Oxford and finished the Pelican Brief in no time. The discipl- that discipline would make him rich and famous. Grisham tells the story with humility, as a series of lucky breaks for which he's very grateful. It's also a story of the purest type of publishing success, a book by nobody that succeeds on its own merits. The firm changed everything for Grisham. He left the law and never looked back. For years, he and his wife, Renee, would refer to BF and AF before the firm and after the firm. In Memphis, Grisham and I visit the Cotton Exchange, where Mitch, in the firm, meets his accomplice, Tammy, as they're planning his turn against his mob front law firm. There's a plaque on the stately old stone building. John Grisham, it reads, in raised bronze letters, with several lines of text about his success and connection to the city. I had nothing to do with it, he says of the plaque. In the exchange, Mitch returns to Memphis on a legal errand and stays at the famed Peabody Hotel, taking a trip down memory lane that serves as a summary of the first novel's plot. Otherwise, there is very little connection between the two stories. The exchange takes place mostly in New York City, where Mitch is a partner at a massive firm, and in Muammar Gaddafi's Libya, where he goes on behalf of a client. This Mitch seems less like the man from the firm and more like a Tom Cruise character, and the ending feels less like a resolution than a cliffhanger. I tell Grisham I found the book perplexing and kept waiting for the mob to return. Grisham, in his disarming way, agrees with me. That's the biggest problem with the book, he says, as if congratulating me for solving a puzzle. Fifteen years later, where's the mafia? Here he is, one of the most famous writers in America, basically admitting his new book makes no sense. Yet. He does so merrily, with the good humor, perhaps, of an author who knows he's review-proof. It's a Grisham book. People will buy it. People will enjoy it. Who am I to take that from them? I decided to let it slide and see how many people comment on it, he said. I think it works as it is. But you do have that nagging question. Grisham owes his career to the firm. Returning to it was daunting. I was afraid to bring Mitch back because, you know, he'll always be the guy in my first big book, he says. At the same time, you can't take this stuff too seriously. Let's bring him back and have some fun. I like the story now that it's done. And, he adds, there's a possibility of doing it again. 
Moving on to the next section called The View. This begins on page 27 and it's from the World of Health. Headline, The Case for Anxiety. This is by David Rossmarin, who is a professor at Harvard Medical School and author of Thriving with Anxiety, Nine Tools to Make Your Anxiety Work for You. The Case for Anxiety. Anxiety. The very word evokes discomfort. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, half of young American adults deal with it. So it's no wonder that this epidemic is causing us so much concern. But as a clinician and researcher, I see a much bigger problem. In our society's quest to be anxiety-free, we tend to miss out on many valuable opportunities presented by this very normal human emotion. In and of itself, anxiety is not deadly. Quite the contrary. Being able to feel anxious shows that our fight-or-flight system is operational, which is an indicator of brain and sensory health. Once we accept that anxious arousal is a normal, albeit uncomfortable, part of life, we can use it to thrive. Here are three ways anxiety can help you. 1. It can build your emotional strength and resilience. If you want to build emotional strength and resilience, you need to face some degree of mental adversity. Of course, traumatic events and abuse tend to cause more harm than good, but the experience of, and perseverance through, occasional anxiety, stress, and tension substantially increases your emotional fortitude. For example, one of the most effective treatments for anxiety is exposure therapy, which involves systematically confronting one's fears head-on in reasonable and increasingly longer doses over time. With the help of a therapist, individuals with phobias or anything from snakes to spiders or heights to medical procedures gradually encounter that which makes them anxious. As they exercise their emotional strength, voluntarily and courageously, they become desensitized to their anxiety and its effects decrease. In my clinical practice, I have treated hundreds of patients with exposure therapy, and in many instances, individuals emerge not only less phobically anxious, but also with greater resilience in general. In one particularly memorable case, I helped a young woman overcome a severe case of hypochondriasis, anxiety fixated on her health, with this method. Years later, when her newborn child had a serious health complication requiring life-saving surgery, she handled the situation with incredible fortitude and calm. Way number two. It can increase your emotional intimacy and connection. Humans are social creatures. The number one predictor of happiness and flourishing in late life is not great genes, financial success, or fame. It's the quality of our relationships. Clinical science has identified that sharing our anxieties with our loved ones is one of the most effective strategies to build connection. 
When my patients learn to open up and share their anxieties with their partners, they almost always report a greater sense of emotional intimacy. Even in the most secure relationships, we naturally feel some anxiety sometimes about whether the love we receive is truly unconditional. As relationship expert Sue Johnson teaches, when we embrace and express our need for connection during challenging moments, in other words, I'm having a hard time right now and could really use your support, it begets greater connection and turns our anxiety into love. Way number three, it can help you recalibrate and rebalance. From time to time, all of us find ourselves at the end of our rope. Our responsibilities pile up, our resources break down, and we just don't have enough time to get everything done. We feel uncomfortably anxious most, if not all, of the time. Many times when my patients are overwhelmed, they tend to take on more demands. Ironically, they take on additional projects at work, volunteer for community service, and provide additional support to their friends. It's easier to avoid thinking about how overwhelmed we feel and pretend that everything is okay when we're focused on work. But working harder, faster, and longer hours when one is already ragged can create chronic stress, which has been associated with heart disease, cancer, and stroke, as well as numerous less severe medical conditions. When we feel genuinely overwhelmed and anxious because of stress, it's our body's way of telling us to recalibrate and rebalance. Nobody is truly limitless. When we heed our internal cues and acknowledge our fallibility, we emerge more focused and healthier overall, and also less stressed and anxious. Anxiety can be a healthy, helpful emotion that is a constructive aspect of human life. It can foster emotional connection when we convey our vulnerable feelings to others. And in the form of stress, it can serve as an internal barometer to remain balanced and healthy. It's about time we start putting it to good use. Moving on now to the inbox section of the view. Headline, The DC Brief by Charlotte Alter, Senior Correspondent. Allie Phillips never wanted to be a politician, but she had always wanted to be a mom of two kids. When Phillips found out she was pregnant in November of 2022, her five-year-old daughter, Adelie, was thrilled too. Her eyes got big and her jaw just dropped open, Phillips says. She and her husband planned to name the baby Miley Rose. But after a scan, when she was around 19 weeks pregnant, doctors told Phillips that the fetus had problems with several organs, conditions not compatible with life outside the womb, a doctor told Phillips. Miley Rose would likely die before birth. The longer Phillips stayed pregnant, the worse her own health would probably become. Phillips, 
who lives in North Tennessee, could not get an abortion in her home state. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, Tennessee enacted one of the strictest abortion bans in the nation. Phillips and her husband had to travel almost a thousand miles to get one. Shortly after she was re she returned, she was approached by the Center for Reproductive Rights, which represents patients denied medically necessary abortions. She also met with her state representative, Republican Jeff Burkhart, to ask his help writing a law expanding abortion options for parents in situations like hers. When Phillips told him about her pregnancy loss, he said, I thought women could only have a miscarriage in their first pregnancy, she recalls. This lack of knowledge, the lack of education, is astounding. That's when she began to think about running for his seat. Burkhart did not respond to Time magazine when contacted. It may be an uphill battle. Donald Trump won the county by double digits in 2020. But abortion bans have reshuffled politics, even in conservative areas. All right, moving on to the world section. Headline, Loved Ones. This article is by Carl Vick. Across 75 years, Israel has built itself around a military so formidable in battle that the country qualifies as a warrior state. But for the 2,000 years before that, the story of the Jews was one of perseverance through persecution, flight, and the kind of intimate house-to-house -house slaughter Israelis awoke to on the morning of October 7th. What Hamas recorded on smartphones and uploaded to social media was a 21st century pro pogrom. The massacre of more than 1,400 people renewed and validated the dread that resides in every Jewish Israeli as a kind of inheritance, the embedded collective memory of trauma that has kept a society's sense of confidence eggshell thin, even behind the most powerful fighting force in the Middle East. What the military is directing onto the Gaza Strip, 6,000 bombs in the first six days, done, had by October 17th, killed more than 3,000 people. For Palestinians, the Israeli-Hamas war is likely the worst trauma since Nakba, or catastrophe, as they refer to the 1948 victory of the Jewish army, that in establishing a Jewish homeland, exiled more than 700,000 Arabs who claimed the same land. Their descendants' defiant presence in blockaded Gaza, where 2.2 million people are ruled by Hamas, and on the West Bank, where 3 million people chafe under Israeli military occupation, has posed a persistent challenge not only for Israel's security, but also for the moral code cultivated during the millennia that Jews had not a state, but a tradition. 
Revenge hangs in the air over Gaza along with Cordite. And just as no Gentile can apprehend the horror of the October 7th Sabbath, nothing can communicate the experience of bombardment. Imagine enduring both. The roughly 200 hostages Hamas carried away at gunpoint were awakened at dawn by the terror of a missile onslaught and faced the darkness of Gaza beneath the thunder of Israeli munitions. They form a kind of human bridge between two realms. I can only hope that she's being held in Gaza, says the son of 74-year-old Vivian Silver, a peace activist missing from her kibbutz. What a terrible hope that is. With power cut off by Israel, accounts of the profound suffering in Gaza are largely being told from a distance. And in a conflict that has always been about competing narratives, Hamas ensured that attention would be on the hostages and their loved ones. The families speak wrenchingly about what they know and the torment of what they don't know. Searching for hope, they find themselves at the mercy both of terrorists and of the intelligence apparatus of an Israeli government that failed them on October 7th and then ignored them in the chaotic days that followed. But they have their fellow citizens. After the worst loss of Jewish lives since the Holocaust, it was Israelis, the legions rising to donate blood, to prepare food, to report for duty, who confirmed why their nation exists. And we will stop there for our coverage of Time Magazine this week. And I need to remind you again that you have been listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Arizona are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers, and no unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Again, my name is Nancy Porter, and it's my pleasure to share parts of the November 6th, 2023 issue of Time Magazine with you.